So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. And while you're turning there, um, just want to remind you all that, that we do have the nursing home ministry this afternoon at 1.30. So if anybody has an inclination in time, you can meet us over there and fellowship for a few minutes with the, the residents over at Oakwood. Uh, we just usually meet with them, sing a little bit, have a, like a devotional, and then uh, that's, that's pretty much it. So it's not a, a big time commitment, but we've got that coming up. Um, also, we're going to be kicking off our community groups again on the 13th. So I know there's, we've said this several times, but I just want to make sure everybody is aware. There is a sign-up sheet out on the table. If you haven't been involved already, make sure, and you want to be, make sure that you sign up. We're going to launch at least two more groups. So we'll have, it's going to be a total of five groups uh, that will be, that will be meeting uh, for a community group this year. And uh, we'd love to have you come out and be a part of that, support that, be involved in that in some way, shape, or form. So, so our scripture reading again, we're in Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be looking at a parallel passage to some of what Andrew will be preaching on today. So starting in verse 12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. That's a nice little uh, encouragement there. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, this is going to be the quiz at the end of the passage here. Did anybody notice the repeated refrain there in those last few verses? You don't have to tell me, I'll tell you. It was thankfulness. Three times there that I counted just uh, at once it started to register that it was showing back up, we're, we're encouraged to be thankful. And I, I think that's a great reminder and encouragement for us as we begin a new year. That we begin kind of in a sense forgetting the past, thinking, you know, not thinking about all the failures and the things that we didn't get accomplished in 2018, not overly concerned about what lies before us in 2019. But let's start this year with thankfulness and thanksgiving toward God. Will you pray with me? Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We hear you instructing us. We hear your voice. It, it's you speaking through the Apostle Paul as he taught the Colossians and by extension teaches us, God, to put off old ways of living. Uh, one of the things that he says there is for us to, to be forgiving toward one another, remembering that each of us in Christ are forgiven people that our debt toward you was immense, God, that no uh, wrong done toward us by another human being could ever stack up to the offense that our sin has been against you. And you have canceled that debt. You've forgiven us and drawn us in as friends and family members. And it's in light of that forgiveness that we're encouraged, God, to start 2019 uh, forgiving others. God, setting aside wrongs done, loving one another, um, treating each other with with love and respect and concern. 
But God, another theme that just really leapt out of these verses is thankfulness. And it's there repeatedly because we are so quickly and so easily complaining and bitter and uh, murmuring people. Thankfulness is not our default setting for, for most of us, God. And so we recognize the shortcomings that, that our lives are uh, abound in, God, and we confess these sins to you that by nature we don't live the way Paul wrote. That's why he had to write and say, don't be sinful, be this way instead. But God, if we're going to be honest this morning, as we start 2019, we have no more hope of living righteously this year than we did last year apart from your help. Apart from the grace that you give us, God, to walk with you in obedience. And so as we begin this year, God, the first time we've gathered for, for corporate worship in this year, we pray and ask God that you would, would bless us and help us and strengthen us, God, and give us the ability to follow the, the commands that we read in your word, God, that you would give us not just the ability, but the longing and desire to be the kind of people that we ought to be. God, we don't want to just be moralistic, theistic deists who want to do the right thing by golly because it's right. We want to be people whose hearts are transformed by the gospel. We want to be those people in whom the Spirit dwells. And we want to walk in that power of the Spirit, God, to be transformed in our lives. And so we ask, confessing God this morning that we can't do it on our own and asking that you would give us the grace, God, to start this year with thankful hearts, worshiping hearts, God, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs this morning with thankfulness in our hearts to the God who has rescued us from our sins and given us a new year to begin to pursue you. God, bless us in that pursuit. Bless us so that we do all that we do as individuals and as a church for the glory of God and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we pray. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward at this time. In just a minute, as they take up the offering, Daniel's going to sing a special song. And uh, it has to deal sort of a continued theme of what we've just been singing about, about the suffering that we all go through. And uh, it seems like here in our church, there are a number of people that have been going through a lot lately. And uh, so I think this is a fitting song. And in a minute, I'm going to read a passage when he gets done with that song and some words from John Piper that I'm going to read. Uh, but I think this is a good time to reflect on the reality that even as we go through these things, even as we go through suffering, there's something that makes sense of it all. There's a narrative that helps us understand and be able to endure the things that we go through. And it's what we've just been singing, that our sins are forgiven, that Christ is going to return, and one day we'll be with him forever. So pray with me this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We're grateful that we know a story uh, that is more than just a, a fairy tale. It's more than just a, a story that we tell ourselves, but it is the truth about what is going on in this world. And we're thankful that you have revealed this to us in your word uh, and that you have given us faith to believe it, Lord. We're, we're thankful for that, especially as we struggle with trials in this life, as we go through things that are difficult. We praise your name for the grace that you give to us in in Jesus Christ. We long for that day when he will return and when we will be with you forever. God, we know that there are many who do not know this story. It's our desire that they would know it, that they would have the hope that we have. It's because of this that we give so that we might support the ministry of this church and the ministry of 
those who are sent through the IMB to, to take the gospel around the world. We, we pray that you would help us to be joyful givers uh, to, to this cause. And we, we pray that you would use what is given this morning and uh, in uh, the offering, uh, that that would fund faithful gospel preachers. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. It's a theme running through much of our worship this morning. Um, when, when peace like a river, uh, or, or rather, um, when, when troubles come, as we sang, uh, we, we can continue to praise the Lord. We can say, though he slay me, yet well, will I trust in him. We can bless the Lord even in our suffering. And that is because of the gospel. That is, as I mentioned, because we, we know this narrative. We know this story about what God is, is doing in and through us and in this world. And so if we suffer, we know that it's temporary. Uh, and we know that God has something far greater for us. Turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to begin at verse 32, Ephesians 4, 32, and we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 2. These verses are really connected, so let's begin at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a British preacher in the last century, and uh, I've been shaped a lot by his preaching and some of the things that he's written. Uh, one of the things that he likes to point out, and he does so in this text, but, but in other places as well, it's just the reality that when the Apostle Paul comes to exhort us about how we ought to live, that is, he gives us ethical and moral commands, do this, like we have here, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Uh, when he tells us to love one another, he does not do so, Paul or God ultimately, does not do so uh, in a way that's disconnected from God himself. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, makes the statement that we can never cut off, at least from a biblical perspective, we can never cut, cut off uh, ethical demands from theology. Ethics or morality and theology must always go together. The biblical system of right and wrong, the actions it deems to be either good or bad, things like how we should treat others or the kinds of behaviors we should or shouldn't do are really all tied to God himself. You cannot divorce ethics and morality from theology. Now, there are some people who have rejected God, atheist and, and secularist, who want to deny God. And when you read some of their greatest thinkers, one of the things that you'll find is many of them are willing to admit that when you get rid of God, you get rid of the standard of morality. You get rid of the foundation or basis for right action. So some of you may be familiar with the, the well-known Richard Dawkins. He's written several books. He's an atheist. And this is what he says about the matter. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should ex expect if there is at bottom no design, 
no purpose, that is, no God. And then he says this, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. One person says, as he quotes Dawkins, he says, Dawkins concedes it's pretty hard to defend absolutist morals on grounds other than religious ones. And so I think Dawkins is there being candid and being honest. He doesn't really seem to bother him, but basically he's saying really to have absolute morals, to have to have a standard of morality, you have, must have God. And when we get rid of God, as Dawkins says that we should, that leaves us in a place where we also have no morality. Jean-Paul Sartre uh, also talked about this. He says, the existentialist, on the contrary, finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist, for there disappears with him all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. There can be no longer, uh, there can be no longer any good a priori, since there is no infinite and perfect consciousness to thank it. It is nowhere written that good exists, that one must be honest or must not lie, since we are now upon the plane where there are only men. Jachewski once wrote, if God did not exist, everything would be permitted, and that for the existentialism, for existentialism is the starting point. Everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist, and man is in consequence forlorn, for he cannot find anything to depend upon either within him or outside himself. It's a bit of an extended quote. There are others. These are intellectuals who have denied God, are coming at the world from an atheistic worldview, and who say when you do that, ultimately there is no solid foundation for absolute moral principles. Now, to say that is not to say that that atheists don't practice morality. Uh, Most thinking atheists do live by some moral code, but they lack a sufficient foundation for it. One atheist who doesn't like uh, the idea that there are no standards for morality says that he thinks that we can just by reason come up with some standard of morality. And so I, I was listening to him and kind of gleaning from what he was saying. At, at the bottom of what he's saying, this is Sam Harris, he proposes that morality is based on simply this, the well-being of conscious creatures. The well-being of conscious creatures. Since we are conscious We ought to work for the well-being of anything that is conscious. I guess any animal life or any human life, we ought to work for the well-being of conscious creatures. Now that could go over very well, right? When you're training your children. Johnny, don't lie. Don't, don't hit your brother. After all, he's a conscious creature, right? Uh, there, there's something there and, and, and we would maybe need to interact with him a little more, uh, thoroughly. But, but at the bottom of that, when I, when I hear something like that, I just say, there's something missing. That's not a very compelling argument. That's not a very compelling reason. Basically, they're saying since we're conscious, that means we should work for the good. Well, what is the good of conscious creatures? It doesn't even define what that good is. And I'm sure they would try to do that. Well, as in the West, in America and and in Europe, uh, we have moved away from God and we have moved into a more atheistic, naturalistic kind of worldview what has happened is that many times, as Al Mohler says, we're living on borrowed capital. 
what he means by that is to say this, that, that people want morality. They don't want people to steal their things. Uh, they want people to be honest with them. They want good workers who can, uh, who can work and do honest work, but they want to reject God. And so oftentimes they will appeal to a code of morality that seems to be innate with us. And indeed it is innate within us from, from creation. But, but it's also there because it's sort of the remnants of Christianity in our society. And so, you know, we ought to love people. We ought to be kind to people. We ought to be honest. We ought to do what's good. But they're living on borrowed capital. They don't have any good foundation for making those claims. Why should I treat others nicely? Why should I not lie? If it advantages me, if it helps me, I'm a conscious creature after all. Maybe I should work for the good of me since I'm a conscious creature. Maybe that's my highest good. You see, there's no good foundation, and so people live on borrowed capital. You see this all over. Uh, many of the campaigns for things like anti-bullying in schools, which are good. I'm not saying that they're not good, but I'm just saying they lack moral foundation. So there, there are things like, you know, hashtag be kind, don't bully. Of course, that's a good thing. We all want that. Bullying should not happen in schools, and uh, it's a terrible thing when that does happen, and we ought to work to try to end that. Uh, but but you see, the problem is when you're telling kids be kind, but you're not giving them any substantial foundation for why they should be kind. You're not giving them any rationale about why that should happen. It's not going to ultimately be effective. Once you philosophically eliminate the God who determines our ethics or our morality, you will greatly hinder the practice of ethical behavior in society. I believe that hum humanity is incapable of sustaining ethical demands like be kind without some rationale that is deeper than it's just the right thing to do or we ought to work for the well-being of conscious creatures or it's how society works best. We, we need something greater than that. Christianity and the Bible provides something much stronger. Our text this morning provides us with a rationale for ethics, for morality, for how we treat one another. It, it provides us for uh, a foundation for morality, and it is the greatest foundation that you can have because it is something that is at the, at the center of what is ultimate in our universe. It's at the very heart or the core uh, of our identity and of our reality. And that is this, it is our understanding of God himself and our experience of the realities of the gospel that give us not only the definition of right and wrong, but the motive and power to do what we ought. In other words, how we should act is linked to who God is. How we should act is directly tied to who God is and what he has done in the gospel. We, as creatures, as those who have been created, we, we've been created to be in a relationship with God. And what that means is that we were created in such a way that to have our identity, to have our reality shaped by who God is. It needs to be informed by the God who has made us. This means that things like morality and ethics are not, are not merely uh, defined by our best attempts to rationally think through it. Instead, ethics or the right treatment of others is defined by God himself and, and it is defined not only by something that God gives us. We have things like the Ten Commandments. We have 
codes and, and laws in the scripture and commands in the scripture. But what I want you to see this morning is that it's not just about a, a list that God sat down and thought about. The, these things are, are good things. And I guess I'll include that in my moral code. When, when God gives his moral code, he's expressing his own character. God is good. God is light. He is righteous. And so when he commands us to do something or not to do something, it's because that is rooted in his own identity. That is who God is. When he commands us to, to act righteously or to be holy, or when he commands us to tell the truth, it's because God is truth. When he commands us to love and to be forgiving, it's because that's who God himself is. We are we are to, in some ways, because we're created uh, in God's image, we are to reflect who God is. That's what he's made us to do. In Genesis, it says that he made man in his own image. And that means that as we live out who we are, we ought to be reflecting God. Now, in the Bible, it's interesting that God so often distances himself from humanity, especially sinful human beings. He, he's very careful to say, I am not a man. I am not a human being like you are. He is holy. He is completely different than us. Uh, but in some ways, because we are made in God's image, God invites us to act as he is. That, that is an amazing thing to think about. Ethics and morality is not a matter simply of following a list of rules, but of emulating the very character of God. We know then, as we stop to think about that, well, how do we know what God is like? Of course, Scripture is the revelation that God gives of himself to us. So if we want to know how we ought to act, we, we must know God, because he is the one who defines right and wrong, and God reveals himself and his character in Scripture. And so we look to the word of God and we think of Psalm 119, 105. Your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How, how should I act? What is wrong? What is right? Well, go to the word of God, but go to the word of God because it's a revelation of who God is. It's a revelation of his character. And we are called to imitate God in that. Of course, the apex or the, the high point of God's revelation of himself is in Jesus Christ. And the preeminent act of God that defines his moral character is in the gospel. So we have in the Old Testament God revealing himself, and those are all true revelations. It's all clear. It's all accurate. But we have the greatest light. The greatest revelation is Jesus Christ himself and what God does in the gospel. So we have this in Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the son. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Do you want to know what God is like so that you ought to know how you ought to live? Look to Jesus Christ. He's the exact imprint of the nature of the glory of God. And so the gospel is really what defines our ethics the gospel, the life, the, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the life of Jesus is what defines our morality. 
It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that above all other things should govern our behavior. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that should above all other ethical demands inform the way that we treat others. To know how we are to treat one another, our highest standard is God, and in particular, God's redemptive action, giving his son to redeem us from our sins. Listen this morning, God's treatment of us in the gospel, God's treatment of us in the gospel provides the best and clearest standard for the way we should treat others. So how should you treat others? Look to the gospel. How does God treat you in the gospel? How does God interact with you? How does God love you? How is God patient with you? How is God kind with you? And and in seeing how God is in the gospel as the clearest and brightest light of his revelation, we then come to understand that's how I should treat others. Christian, you have something more to guide your behavior this morning than cute little ad campaigns or philosophy, you know, philosophical vanity as we read from Sam Harris, hashtag be nice is good as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. You have something far deeper and longer lasting than a temporary campaign. What drives your behavior is God himself. What shows you how to treat other people is the one who is at the center of reality. God, who is at the center of the reality, the, the first cause of all things is himself the one who defines what is right and what is wrong, how we ought to treat one another. This text this morning calls us to moral behavior. It calls us to be kind to one another. It calls us to be compassionate or tender-hearted toward one another. It calls us to love one another. It calls us to forgive one another. But in all of that, Paul Paul frames it in this context. He doesn't just say do that apart from any other consideration. Hashtag be kind. Hashtag forgive. He says do it because that's who God is. And that's what God has done for you. So look at the text this morning. Look again at verse number one. Here's the main command. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. God. This word is a word that actually means to mimic something. It, it has the idea of being an imitator or copier, maybe as an actor who impersonates someone. In the bad sense, it can be an imposter, someone who's pretending to be someone else. But here, this is in a positive sense. We are called to imitate God. And throughout the Bible, God is always careful, as I said, to distinguish himself from us, to say, I'm not like you and you are not like me. But in this regard, when it comes to morality, when it comes to the way that we live, when it comes to righteousness and holiness, God invites us to imitate him. Be like me. In fact, when we look to the, the commands of God, even in the Old Testament, we find God saying this. So in the Old Testament, all these commands that are in the Old Testament law about do this and don't do that, all of them are summed up with the, within the concept of holiness. You are to be holiness. You are to be separated from sin. And what does God say about that in Leviticus? God says, you shall be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. I want you to be like me. He says this, here, Paul says that we are to be imitators of God. 
This isn't a bad imitation. We see that he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. We're children of God. And children, like it or not, they act like their parents. For my kids, oftentimes that's a very bad thing. But when it comes to God and the fact that he is our father, we are to imitate him. And that is a very good thing because he's righteous. He always does what is right. And so we are to be like our father. We're we're to be like, he says, beloved children. This idea of a child that's very close, a child that's very near. And you've all seen it before. You've seen children who are just eyeing their parents and they just, whatever their parents do, whatever their dad does, they're, they're taking the next step with him. And sometimes as they get older, as much as they don't want that to happen, they end up becoming just like their parents because they're, they're imitating their parents. That's what God calls us to in this text. He's calling us to live and act in a certain way, but, but it's greater than just moral commands. He's saying, be like me. I'm your dad. I'm your father. Act like I am your father as beloved children. But then he says we're to be imitators of God, not only because we are his children as beloved children, but also because we are recipients of the goodness of God. Look, look at verse 32. Look at verse 32 in chapter four. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because they're conscious creatures and you should forgive, uh, conscious creatures. It, it'll be good for them and, and it'll be good for you. No. Forgive one another. As God in Christ forgave you, you're a recipient of forgiveness from God. And so you ought to extend that same forgiveness to others. We see this again in in verse two. It's the same reason and it's a compelling reason. And walk in love. Why? Just because it's a good idea, because it helps society flow smoothly or, or something like that. No, walk in love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave himself for us. We are to live as Christ lived. He loved us, and his love was a sacrificial love. His love was a forgiving love. And since you are a recipient of that, since you are a child of God, you should act in that same way toward one another. Well, let's just think about these things that are commanded now. With that framework in mind, we see the first thing that he commands us here is to be kind to one another. I've defined that as the kindness, as a favorable disposition toward another that is demonstrated in gracious and compassionate acts. It's a favorable disposition toward another that is demonstrated in gracious and compassionate acts. God, listen this morning, God is kind to us, is he not? God is good to us. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. That word good is a word that can be translated kind. In fact, in the Septuagint, it is translated kind. The same word that's used here in Ephesians. The Lord is kind. Taste and see that the Lord is kind. The Lord is kind to us. God has a favorable disposition toward his children that leads him to constantly act in kindness to us. Isn't God kind to you? God is kind to us in all kinds of ways. Think about the, the acts of God's kindness toward us. Just, just stop and think for a minute. Think about the blessings that you have in, li- in your life. They are all kindnesses of God to you. So children, I mentioned children before. 
Children are one of the kindnesses of God that he gives to, to us. One of the, one of the greatest kindnesses that you can enjoy. It's a blessing from God. It's God smiling at you. God has a favorable disposition toward you and he, he grants you to have children. About material blessings. That, that's not the highest or the greatest uh, kindness of God, but it certainly is a kindness of God. The fact that we have plenty to eat and we have nice homes and nice cars, all of those kind of material blessings. We should not live for those things, but we do recognize that they are kindnesses of God. Friendship. God gives us friendship, the, the enjoyment of conversation and, and people to be with and share life with. Then there's the enjoyment of God's creation. It's all God's kindness to us. Food. We eat food and we enjoy it. It doesn't taste like cardboard. It's not, it's not tasteless. But when God created you, He created you with the ability to eat and enjoy the taste of food. And isn't it wonderful? Many of us are showing our enjoyment of that kindness over the holidays right now with the extra 10 pounds that we're carrying around, right? Uh, we are enjoying the kindness of God, but, but how often do we not recognize that? The enjoyment of food and sex and music and art, the ability to enjoy stories, the beauty of creation as we look out and gaze, all of that is God saying, I love you. I want to be kind to you. Enjoy this. He's giving it to you for your enjoyment. It's because he is kind, because he is good. But nothing in this life is going to compare to the kindness that God is going to give us in eternity. You remember Ephesians 2, this same word is used earlier in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, verse 6, it says, God raised us up with him and seated, that is with Christ, and seated us with him in Christ, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. In eternity, he's going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And how is he going to do that? In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For all eternity, he's going to be showing us his grace. It's, a, it's an overflowing, an overwhelming kind of grace. It's, it's the riches, the abundance, the superabundance of his grace. And in all eternity, he's going to be showing that to us. How, how so? In what form is that grace going to come? In kindness. The riches of his grace in kindness toward us. We, we have no idea. Paul says in Corinthians that I has not seen nor ear heard what the Lord has prepared for those who love him. You have no idea. You think steak is good now. You think music is good. You think sex is good. You think this creation is beautiful. It is, but it's only a little hint. It's only a little taste of the kindness that God is going to show us in all eternity. God is kind. God is even kind to his enemies. And this is what should blow our mind, that we are enemies, but God is kind to us. Psalm 145, 9 says, The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. You remember what Jesus taught in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, You have heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. You see the connection there again? 
You want to be like God? It isn't just, hey, do this because it's a good thing to do. Do it because it helps society. No, it's do it because in doing so, you're demonstrating that you are a son of your Father in heaven so that you may be a son of your Father who is in heaven for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. Like You don't have to be a, a, a Christian to go to the Grand Canyon and take in the beauty and the awe and the wonder that is there. You don't have to be one of God's children, a, a, a follower of Jesus Christ, to look at a sunset and see the beauty. That is God's kindness, and He gives it not only to His children, but He gives it to all people, even those who are in that very moment, as they are watching that sunset or sunrise, as they are experiencing that beauty, as they are taking in the kindness of God, they are at the very moment rebelling against God, and yet God is kind to them. God is kind to even his enemies and we ought to be because we are sons of our father in heaven. He goes on to say, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, the same kind of uh, thinking is, is going on there. So you hear the, the, the foundation for your ethics, for how you treat others. It's, it's far more than some of those other things that we said. It's do it because this is your father and you are to be like your father. God's kindness to his enemies is ultimately really what draws us to salvation. It was God's kindness to us while we were sinners that drew us to God in salvation. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It is God's kindness to us that has led us to repentance. It's God's gracious disposition that continues to bless us, even when we were enemies, that drew us to the Lord. Think of how God drew you to repentance. How did God draw you to salvation? Just think about some of the kindnesses of God in your life. How about the place where you were born in America, where, where there are so many gospel preaching churches, where there's freedom of religion and where, where the word of God has been able to be proclaimed with, with freedom and liberty. That's one of God's kindnesses in your life that led you to repentance. God allowed you to be born in this place. Many of us had parents or grandparents who, who brought us to church so that we would hear the gospel preached. And, and many of us had parents who would even preach the gospel to us in our homes. That's a kindness of God that led you to repentance. His patience with you, as Romans is talking about, his patience with you is his kindness that led you to repentance. So all the while you were running away from God, all the while you were disobedient, all the while you were hearing the gospel preached and you didn't want anything to do with it, God was patiently waiting. And that was his kindness that drew you to repentance. Had God acted in justice, he could have sent you to hell that very moment and he would have been right to do so. But his kindness led him to be patient with you. How many repeated warnings did we hear before we believed the gospel? How many times did we hear about the judgment of God before we finally were drawn 
to Christ. How many countless sweet invitations of the gospel did we hear before we finally believed? All of those things and many, many more were kindnesses of God to you that lead you to repentance. God's kindness then provides us, doesn't it? Because this is what it's all about in this text is you be like God, be imitators of God. That's how God is kind. How are we to be kind? How about being patient with those who are getting on our nerves? How about being kind? How about having a favorable disposition to people instead of being grumpy and mean toward people all the time? We have to have a favorable disposition that, that lends itself to, to, to take acts of kindness, gracious acts toward others. We are to be imitators of God in this way, in kindness. Secondly, we are to be tender-hearted, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Wayne Grudem says this uh, to define this word. He says, a tender heart is a helpful translation of a word which means caring or compassionate, not only in actions, but even more in one's feelings or emotions. Another person said this, to have a compassionate feeling toward the weakness and misery of others. So you see people suffering, you see their weakness to be tender-hearted is to have compassion toward them in their weakness. When we think about God, how God has compassion toward us. You think about as we've been studying in Sunday school, I'll put a plug in there. What was it that led God to to come and redeem his people? Of course it was his promise that he had given to Abraham, but what did he say? I've heard the pe- the cry of my people. There was a compassion that God had for his people in their suffering that said, now is the time. Now is when I'm going to deliver them. Now is when I'm going to lead them out of slavery. It was God. And again, as we look to Christ as the fullest and brightest revelation of God's character, think about how Jesus was tenderhearted, how he was compassionate. It was compassion that drove Jesus to heal the six. The sick, Matthew 14, 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Why did he heal the sick? Because he had compassion for them. He saw their suffering and he didn't just pass by it. He didn't just go on. He didn't just say, I don't have time for that. I've got other things to do. I need to be preaching. I need to be in the temple. He saw the sick and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. It was his compassion that led him to feed the hungry. In Matthew 15, 32, then Jesus called to his disciples and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Jesus could have said, right, if he wasn't tender hearted, if he wasn't compassionate, hey, they got time. We can't feed all these people. I got other stuff to do. They should have known not to follow me out into the desert like without bringing food with them. That doesn't make sense. You don't, you don't just leave home and, and journey out into the wilderness without bringing food. Like let them just make their way back. They'll be okay. No, Jesus says, I have compassion on them and I'm not willing to send them away hungry. It was his compassion that led Jesus to weep for Lazarus. So he looked around. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus. He knew what was about to happen. And yet he wept. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. Why did he weep? He's looking around and he's seeing Mary. And he's seeing the friends and the loved one. And he had compassion on them. And he was moved to weep for their weeping. It was his compassion that led him to teach 
those who were lost in darkness. Jesus' compassion was not just a compassion about physical circumstances. We need to be sure that our compassion isn't just for physical circumstances. We ought to be compassionate on the sick and on the hungry and on the poor. We ought to have compassion because Jesus had compassion on those people, but we ought to also have a compassion for the lostness of the world, and Jesus had that compassion as well. Matthew 9.36 says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He was tender-hearted for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so Jesus looks at them and he realizes these people are in darkness. These people don't know the truth. I'm the truth. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the way of salvation. He knew that and he looks out on them. They're so dark. They're straying. They're like sheep without a shepherd and sheep without a shepherd is not a good scenario for the sheep, right? They're going to die. They're going to suffer. They're going to harm themselves. They need a shepherd. And Jesus looks and he says, these people need someone to guide them. They need somebody to direct them. They need someone to lead them in the path of salvation. And he had compassion for them we ought to have compassion for the world around us we should never get over the reality of the fact that people that we come into contact with are lost that they are separated from christ and that they are on their way to an eternity in hell if you get over that as a christian there's something wrong with you you need to have a tender heart you need to have compassion this means the fact that we're called to be tender-hearted means that we should not be those who can easily pass by the suffering and the misery of others. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Some of our mourning should be because we look in the world and we see suffering and we see cancer and we see starvation and we see tyranny and we see all kinds of horrible things and we shouldn't just be those who isolate ourselves and let's not think about that. We ought to be those like Jesus who were moved to act by our compassion. Let me just say this. If your political views lack compassion, you need to get rid of them. If you're political, I don't care what political party you're affiliated with, if your politics lead you to be not compassionate toward those in need, you need to get rid of those politics. So I, I just think of a couple things. One, if you're, if you're not compassionate toward the unborn and the millions upon millions who are being slaughtered each year, through abortion, if that just doesn't affect you at all, you need to be tender-hearted. You need to have compassion. But let me say this as well. If you can look at the plight of those who are immigrants, those who are in third world countries, those who are suffering from starvation and malnutrition, who are under horrible uh, political regimes, if you can just look at them and say, I don't care about them, I don't care about their suffering, that's a wrong view. And you can't hold that view as a Christian if you're going to be consistent as a Christian. You need to care for the immigrant. You need to care for the poor. You need to care for those who are in need. And so there's a lot that could be said on both of those things to unpack that, but we just, wisdom needs to be known how to, how to deal with those issues and what's the best way. I grant you all that on both of those issues. And yet you cannot be one who lacks compassion. We need to be careful that our politics don't inform us more than our call to be like God. And then thirdly, we are to be forgiving like God in Christ has forgiven us. 
You know, this is something I think that no ethical system, the, the call and the command to forgive is something that no ethical system outside of one that's rooted in the character of God can really give us a, a good foundation for. Like we can say, let's be nice to each other just so we can get along and have a good society. But the idea of forgiving, especially forgiving people who have really, really wronged us. I'm not talking about somebody was just a little bit rude or that they didn't, they weren't thoughtful enough or they were a little bit careless with their words. I'm talking about like, the big offenses, the things that really hurt us physically or emotionally or spiritually, the things that really do damage to us, we're called to forgive. But there's no ethical system in this world apart from the Lord that, that, that helps us understand why we should do that. Do you see the foundation? He says, do this because God forgave you. The gospel, as we think about the gospel, is God bearing the cross for forgiving us. You know, when you forgive somebody or when, let me say it this way, when there is an offense, there's also, there's always a cost to be paid. There, there's always a loss that has to be absorbed. If you forgive somebody for stealing from you, for instance, there's, there's a loss, right? Someone has to absorb that loss. Either they will make restitution and repay it or you just simply say, that's okay. I forgive you and I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm writing that off. If you forgive someone who comes into your home and breaks something that's irreplaceable, right? It's irreplaceable. They can't do anything to, to replace it. So, so there's a loss. If you forgive them, you just have to say, I'm just not gonna, I'm not gonna hold it against you, right? But, but what about when the damage is not physical? That makes sense to us. What, what about when the damage is not f- f- physical? When an offense occurs, something within us has been damaged. Something has been broken. Something has been lost. And how can you make restitution for that? When somebody says something really damaging or hurtful to you, restitution can't be made. They could pay you a million dollars. And it might help you say, well, I'm not going to think about it or something like that, but it doesn't really make restitution. Those words still hurt, right? That You can get over it. Well, a million dollars, I'll just choose not to think about it. But 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 you still, there's damage that is caused there. There are just some things, there are some acts, some words which you cannot make restitution. So many of us say things like, well, you know, I'll just never be able to forgive that person. I'm not going to be able to let that go. When an offense occurs, we can choose one of two options. We can either hold it over that person, seeking to cause them. I want to make them feel the pain that I felt. And so I'm trying to get restitution in that way. They damaged me. They said things harmful to me. So I'm going to hold this over them so I can... I, I can harm them, but but even that doesn't really take care of the issue. Or we can choose to bear the cost ourselves and grant them unconditional forgiveness, which is what we're commanded to, and it's what God did for us. It's when we say, that hurt, that caused me damage. In some instances, I will probably never be able to completely get over this event that happened, this traumatic experience, these these harsh or critical words that somebody has done or said to me, but this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bear the cost. I'm going to forgive you. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to try to continue to make you pay for this. I'm going to pay for it, but I'm going to forgive you. That's the kind of forgiveness that we're called to express in the Bible. And that's the reason we're called to express that kind of forgiveness is because that's the kind of forgiveness that God has extended to us. 
God didn't say, I'm going to wait till you get things turned around or I'm going to make you pay until I can be satisfied that you've experienced some of the pain and some of the suffering that you've caused. No, no, he simply extends unconditional forgiveness. And what does he do? He bears the cost himself. We are to walk in love, it says in verse 2, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's what God is doing. God is saying, I'm going to forgive you and it's going to cost me. I'm not going to wait for you to make restitution. I'm not going to wait for you to pay it back. I'm going to pay the price. And that's what Christ is doing on the cross. When you think about the fact that Christ has done this for you, that will empower you to grant unconditional forgiveness. Christian, this morning, if you have received forgiveness from the Lord, and for your sins from Almighty God, there, there should be no one in this life whom you have not forgiven. If you have received unconditional forgiveness from the Lord Almighty for all of the wrong that you have committed against God, there should be no one in this life that you cannot forgive. We are to be a forgiving people. Right now in your heart, I want to, I want you to think about that person who you've wronged or who has wronged you rather. And I want you to commit in your heart before God that you will begin to take steps toward them in forgiveness. How can we receive such great forgiveness and then be unwilling to extend that same forgiveness to others? I'm going to ask Daniel to come. We're going to close in a hymn. But if the Lord is dealing with you in that way, I would encourage you uh, to seek restitution, to seek reconciliation don't seek restitution seek reconciliation uh, with the one who has wronged you let's pray our heavenly father we come to you this morning and we are grateful lord that you are good we're grateful that you are tender-hearted we're grateful that you're a forgiving god that you are a loving god we're grateful that you're our father and Lord, we want to be like you in this regard. We want to act as you act. Help us though, Lord. We're sinners. We're broken. This is a challenge for us. I pray that you would enable us to live as you've called us. We're, we're thankful, Lord, that you've sent the spirit of your son into us that we might be sons as well. You, you've granted us adoption and you've empowered us to be able to do these very things that we've talked about this morning. Lord, we recognize that these are transformative truths. If we live this way truly, we will stand out from the world. And that's what we desire, that we might be holy as you are holy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.